Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about what antimatter is and how we discovered it. Then, Dr. Jen Gunter, author of the Menopause Manifesto, who's also been called the world's most famous gynecologist, will bust some myths about menopause. Let's satisfy some curiosity. In physics, the theories guiding the worlds of the very large and the very small have often been at odds, and many prominent physicists have tried to unite them. In 1928, Paul Dirac made an important first step to combine these theories, and his work ended up predicting a completely new kind of material, antimatter. Here's the weird story of what antimatter is and how we discovered it. Dirac was known as a very competent mathematician, so when he tried to reconcile quantum theory's Schrodinger equation with Einstein's famous E equals MC squared from general relativity, he recognized something interesting was going on in the mathematics. Instead of a single solution, there were two. One solution corresponded to the electron, which is a particle we've known about since the 1800s. The other solution predicted a similar, but so far undiscovered particle. This new particle would have all the same characteristics as the electron, except for one. It would have a positive charge instead of a negative one. Yeah, an electron with a positive charge. At the time, it was imaginary. To make his new theory work, Dirac had basically come up with a make-believe particle, or technically antiparticle. And this prediction proved to be a feature of Dirac's new theory, not a bug, which meant that the theory was falsifiable. So the question became, would someone come up with an experimental observation that disproved his idea, or could physicists find a particle that matched the theory? And thus, the search for the positron began. And it didn't take long. Carl Anderson was the first to find one just four years later using an experimental setup called a cloud chamber. No, not the room where the main character of Final Fantasy VII sleeps. A cloud chamber is a box filled with supersaturated vapor. When a particle passes through the vapor, it leaves a trail of tiny droplets. Anderson was using a cloud chamber to study cosmic rays, which are high-energy particles that originate from space. Now, since the electron and positron are both charged particles, you can put a magnetic field down the middle of the chamber and send the particles to one side or the other. That's what made the finding so obvious. Since the electron is negatively charged and the positron positively charged, their tracks would be identical, except they would curve the opposite direction. Both Dirac and Anderson would be awarded Nobel Prizes in physics, Dirac in 1933 and Anderson in 1936, and their work created a whole new branch of physics. No big deal. It also set off a search for other antimatter particles. And although antimatter may seem exotic, it can be found in places much closer to home, not just in cosmic rays. Positrons can also be emitted when radioactive elements decay. Radioactive elements like the potassium-40 in your banana. Yeah, that banana you're having for lunch... It emits one positron every 75 minutes. Even today, there are plenty of mysteries about antimatter. While the symmetry of Dirac's equation predicts the existence of antimatter, it doesn't answer another important question. Why is there so much more matter compared to antimatter?
Well, we don't know, but scientists are getting closer to the answer. Or maybe the problem is they should be looking for the anti-answer. Dun, dun, dun. That's probably not the that's probably not the problem they should be looking for. <laughs> There's a big biological change that half the population will experience when they reach a certain age. And most people know barely anything about it. I'm not talking about puberty. I'm talking about menopause. So we're going to shed light on that mystery with the help of today's guest. Dr. Jen Gunter is an OBGYN and pain medicine specialist who's been called the world's most famous and outspoken gynecologist. In her new book, The Menopause Manifesto, Dr. Jen counters stubborn myths and misunderstandings about menopause with hard facts, real science, fascinating historical perspective, and expert advice. We started our conversation with some basics. What is menopause? So menopause is the last period, or we sort of say it starts a year after the last period, because you never really know it's your last one until it's your last one. So before that time is a time called the menopause transition, which is when ovulation gets erratic. And that's a time of hormonal chaos. So you could have high estrogen levels, you could have low estrogen levels, the hormones from your brain that are signaling the ovary are sort of all over the place as well, up and down. And so for many people, that's when their symptoms of menopause start. It starts the years before. So people may have hot flushes, they may have night sweats, they may have trouble sleeping, they may have vaginal dryness. But for some people, those symptoms don't start until after their last period. And I think that's what makes menopause so unique in many ways medically is that you can talk to a hundred women and hear a hundred different stories. Yeah. So what are what are some myths that are out there about it? Because it seems like we know so little. Right. I mean, I think we know so little because it's never talked about. I mean, everybody knows that puberty exists and the basics, right? But very few people know about menopause, which is really just puberty in reverse. I would say that some of the coolest things about it are the fact that many people think erroneously that menopause is a sign of ovarian failure, you know, that the ovaries are like giving up, that women are somehow weak. But there's ample evolutionary evidence to support uh, what's called the grandmother hypothesis, which means that women evolved to live beyond their ovarian function because they were helpful to their community and their family unit. And so we know that um, historically families that had grandmothers ended up having more grandchildren, and that's how you pass your genetics along. So menopause is uh, sort of survival of the species, the long game, not just your immediate genetic lineage, your children, but, you know, your children's children. I love that. Yeah. It's a useful adaptation, not not a wearing out of the body. Exactly. But, you know, the narrative has been controlled by, you know, men. And if you tie a woman's value to reproduction, then that fits that narrative. But if you say, listen, women are incredibly valuable at all ages and we have great you know, data to support that in flipping the script, it makes menopause sound different, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I would love to know more about some of these symptoms and like the reasons for them. I remember being in elementary school and my teacher who is, you know, of a certain age, started sweating and getting getting really just flushed and, you know, had to sit down and fan herself. And I didn't understand what was going on. And now I know that that was probably hot flashes. What what causes that? How does that have anything to do with estrogen? 
Right. So it's very complex and it's not just estrogen levels. Otherwise, young girls would have hot flashes, right? Because they don't have estrogen yet before puberty. So it's related to a complex sequence of events that is partially related to sort of the withdrawal of estrogen. Although this is such complex neurobiology and we can't exactly, you know, take apart a brain of someone while they're having a hot flush. So getting the data is difficult. But one of the theories that we think is that so thermoregulation, your body temperature, and reproduction are really tightly controlled. So your temperature rises actually in the second half of the cycle after ovulation, because that's more ideal for implantation. So there's a lot of sort of co-mingling of the nerves that control temperature and the nerves that control reproduction. And one of the theories is there's a set of temperature controlling nerves that relay signals of heat to your brain and that estrogen actually tamps down those signals, right? And so without estrogen, those nerves basically get more shouty and they're telling you you're hot when you're not. But there's probably other hormonal drivers as well. So it's that. And then what happens is you think you're hot, but you're not. And so your body starts to shunt all your blood to the superficial vessels to give off heat. And so you start sweating and then you can even shiver and be cold afterwards because now you've actually lowered your body temperature, but you weren't hot to begin with. Wow. Do we have treatments for that? Yeah. So hot flushes um, or hot flashes have a lot of different therapies and it just depends on someone's bother factor. So, you know, if you're only having a few and it's not bothersome for you, well, you know, maybe you don't need to be treated. Maybe just dressing in layers is enough because preventing yourself from getting hot can can be helpful. For many people, it's in menopause, it's like a heat accelerant. So if you get a little bit hot, your brain runs with it and goes, oh, we're a little bit hot. We're going to get really hot now. Let me show you that. Uh, so preventing yourself from getting overheated can be useful. But for other people, their um, cognitive behavioral therapy is actually effective for hot flushes. Believe it or not, you can rewire your brain with cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, there's menopausal hormone therapy, um, and those would be the two most effective therapies. Wow. It's amazing that these things are all related. How does how does cognitive behavioral therapy help? I mean, you just kind of convince yourself that you're not hot? Well, everything in your brain is chemical messaging, right? So you, you know, your brain uses serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and all the other neurotransmitters to create experiences. Like, like if you cut yourself, it's your brain that assembles that signal and tells you it's pain. And so some pathways can become stronger by using very specific talk therapy. You can actually tamp down the areas that are overactive. You can say to your brain or train your brain to use a different pathway. And a lot of times people mistake this as saying, oh, well, you mean that's all in my head? And, and that's not what that is at all. This is basically the mind-body connection in action. You can make it so your brain uses other pathways. Yeah, it turns out that the human brain is a pretty powerful tool. And if you thought that was interesting, then stick around, because tomorrow we'll wrap up our conversation by diving a bit deeper into how menopause affects the brain. Again, that was Dr. Jen Gunter, an OBGYN and pain medicine specialist who's been called the world's most famous and outspoken gynecologist. Her new book, The Menopause Manifesto, just came out yesterday, and you can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. Let's recap the main things we learned today. Well, we learned that Paul Dirac accidentally predicted antimatter in 1928 because he was trying to reconcile the Schrodinger equation with Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals MC squared. 
But his answer needed an electron with a positive charge, which at the time we hadn't actually discovered. And for all we knew, it was make-believe. It just took four years for fellow physicist Carl Anderson to actually discover this anti-electron, also known as a positron. And antimatter is like a very real thing. It sounds like something you only hear about in Star Trek, but you can find positrons leaking out of your banana several times a day. The more you know. Yeah, once in a while I grab a banana and I'm just like, tastes like there's too many positrons missing from this one. (laughs) Happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to have a banana with too many electrons in it and then put it next to a banana with too many positrons because then they're just going to annihilate and, you know, then you're not going to have any bananas left. I want a banana with chocolate ice cream on it. Let's go, dude. (laughs) We also learned that half the population of Earth goes through menopause, but we don't talk about it a whole lot. So here's the deal. Menopause itself is basically a woman's last period. And before that is the menopause transition, which is a time of hormonal chaos that can happen years before menopause actually happens. During that time, ovulation becomes erratic. Estrogen levels go up and down, kind of all over the place. And hot flashes can happen when the brain exaggerates how hot a person is, which interestingly, women can fight with cognitive behavioral therapy. Who knew the power of the mind? Yeah, that really surprised me. And also, according to Dr. Jen Gunter, menopause is kind of just puberty in reverse. Just because women can't give birth after menopause doesn't mean they can't support their family and community and really help the human species thrive for a really long time. That in itself is an evolutionary advantage. You're, you're helping your genes survive, even though you're not making more of them. And the hope is that more of us will know about menopause because we're talking about it more as a society and including more women in the conversation since, you know, that's who has to experience it. I'll tell you, I, I really have known so little about menopause. I've known some of the side effects that come up, but I haven't known why they happen. It's been kind of a mystery to me. So it was really great to talk to Dr. Jen. Talk about a mystery to you. My goodness. It was eye-opening for me, and I do hope that more people learn about this stuff because, like, I mean, it's like it has a huge impact on people going through it. And if it's not talked about, it it reminds me of when my wife was still working full-time while she was pregnant. Like, some companies have good parental leave policies, and, and you get some time off after the birth. But, like, what people don't realize is during the first trimester of a pregnancy, which socially in the U.S. is generally before you even tell anyone about it, That first trimester, a lot of women are so tired. She was literally sleeping 14 to 16 hours a day because that's what your body does. And it's like, okay, well, great. Uh, We give some people time off after the kid. But like, what about what about all that time leading up to it? And then it just reminds me of the menopause situation. It's like if someone's going through this, like just hormonal, really intense hormonal swings, people have to be made aware of it. And learn empathy and just think about like what other people could be going through that's totally invisible, especially men, because like we don't really have these kind of events in our lives. So half the population of the planet goes through it, you know? Absolutely. Same page. It's like because it's a women's issue and it has to do with hormones, nobody wants to talk about it and then nobody gets help for it. And that's no good. Yeah. So hope this helps. The writer for today's first story was Brianna Brownell. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Eat a banana split so you can make a joke about how you're eating positronic ice cream. I would tell you an antimatter joke myself, but 
It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.